Welcome to Sagittarius I, issue 28, September 3306, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial Once again, we're making changes at Sagittarius I. A trend we've seen over the last year and a half is that our printed edition has suffered a steady fall in readership. But at the same time, our podcasts and videos have been enjoying an increased audience. Lacking infinite capacity, this trend is somewhat forcing our hand. So for the time being, we're shelving the printed edition. But this change isn't about stopping things. It's about making Sagittarius Eye stronger and more sustainable, and it allows us to increase the frequency of our podcast edition. We'll be going forward with monthly podcasts instead of quarterly, and we hope our listeners appreciate the more frequent editions to accompany their journeys through the Milky Way. We'll never say never. There are, of course, changes afoot in the Pilots' Federation, and perhaps in time, if there's a demand, the printed edition will be back. As the Pilots' Federation is so fond of saying, though, we don't have plans for that at this time. So to kick off this month's edition, we have a smorgasbord of non-sequence stars, voyages to the galactic limits, a trip to the Mother of Redemption station, and some pertinent advice on how not to die in a conflict zone. As always, Sagittarius I is by pilots, for pilots, And may this month's edition not only entertain and inform, but perhaps reduce your chances of having to take the Rimlock Ride of Shame. Voyages to the Galactic Limits Every explorer has heard of the epic journey made by Commander Kamzal in 3301 to the system we now know as Beagle Point, then the furthest reachable system from Sol, which has become a pilgrimage for explorers. 3302 introduced frameshift drive synthesis boosts and engineering, and with these, new records for the furthest reachable systems from Sol and Sagittarius A star, Samotus Beacon and Suppositus Beacon respectively. Both of these in-galactic plane records have never been beaten and, likely, never will be. The rim of the Milky Way is fairly regular, and there is nowhere else to go. But, in 3302, the race to be the furthest above and below the galactic plane was just getting started. Early exploration ships took commanders roughly 2,900 light-years from the galactic plane. With engineering and synthesis boosting, the 3000 light-year barrier was broken in both directions. Then came neutron star supercharging and an interesting twist. A supercharged, highly engineered anaconda could jump over 270 light-years, bringing even more systems within reach. However, without a neutron star in the destination system, there was no way back. A serendipitous discovery enabled the return from these far-flung places. By engaging hyperdrive within the jet cone, a second supercharge could be obtained in the few seconds before the ship jumped away. The maneuver was risky. 
It would fail if the pilot flew through the cone too quickly, leaving them stranded. Explorers were undeterred, and the double neutron supercharge was quickly adopted. The competition in 3303 was friendly, but determined. Some records lasted for only a few days. By June that year, the height record had been broken four times, and the depth record three times. Veteran explorers will not be surprised to learn that the legendary commander Elitnal held both the height record, 3,354 light years above the plane, and the depth record, 3,299 light years below the plane. In August 3303, this correspondent charted Kaili Flaui, AA-A H4, some 3,381 light years below the galactic plane. A 274 light-year jump from ZE-A G15 was required to reach the system. In an era before the Guardian frameshift drive booster, when engineering outcomes were less predictable, this was a mammoth distance. Only a handful of starships possessed the necessary range. At Colonia, the Endurance, an anaconda built for exploration, was paired down to the bare essentials. She could now jump there, but getting back would prove far trickier. The distance to Kylie Flyui AA-AH4 was so vast that the Endurance could barely carry any fuel. Just 4.3 tons would remain on arrival. This was not an immediate problem as the system has an O-class star, but the same problem would be encountered after the return to ZE-AG15 which has no scoopable stars. Even supercharged, 4.3 tons was insufficient to retrace the route. Calling for help would reveal the location of the prize. Desperate for a solution, the map was scoured again, and Kaili Flaui ZE-AGO, an O-class star, was found to be perfectly placed to act as a stepping stone. The fuel remaining on arrival would be a mere 1.5 tons. On the 8th of September 3303, the Endurance arrived at ZE-A G15, its frameshift drive supercharged and lined up for a jump to AA-A H4. Edging into the Neutron Star jet cone, the FSD safety alarm flashed and the throttle was pushed to the stop. With only milliseconds to spare, the frameshift drive was supercharged again and the Anaconda launched herself across the vast interstellar gulf. There is little to see at AA-A H4. A single icy body orbits the barrier center of the two stars. With all scans complete, the Endurance departed, carrying as much fuel as she could. The fuel calculations proved correct and the ship arrived at ZE-AGO with a remark left on the logbook on the perilously low fuel state. The star at Kaili Flyui AA-AH4 was named Vazel Point after the intended destination of Shackleton's original ship, Endurance. Shortly after the voyage, the Pilots' Federation prohibited the double supercharge on safety grounds, and it seemed the galactic height and depth records were finally settled. 3304 brought enhanced, more reliable engineering and the Guardian Frameshift Drive Booster, 
pushing jump ranges beyond 80 light years. Many new systems were charted, but few could be reached. Furthermore, without the double supercharge, a neutron star was again required into destination system to make the return journey possible. One such system was found. Trienu AA-AH2 lies some 3,393 light years below the galactic plane, reachable only via DL-YG3. The massive 333 light year jump pushes the limits of even a fully engineered, stripped down, guardian boosted anaconda. Both AA-AH2 and DL-YG3 have neutron stars, but fuel again would prove to be the sticking point. AA-AH2 has no fuel stars, so a starship would have to carry enough for the return journey. The system had to be independently charted by Commander Tain, coincidentally arriving with this correspondent at DL-YG3 on the 8th of July 3305. Both sets of calculations came to the same conclusion. It was not possible to carry enough fuel for the return trip. Matters were made even worse when Tain's one-way trip to AA-AH2 revealed that the neutron star was over 355,000 light seconds from the system entry point. It would take around 15 minutes of supercruise flight to cover this distance all the time burning more fuel. Both this writer and Commander Tain had searched extensively for new records, only to be denied for want of a few tons of fuel. They were promising alternative routes back, but they turned out to be a dead end. Tain developed the innovative pre-fueling maneuver, transferring one ton of fuel to a ship as it jumped away. However, this was still not enough. Defeated, Tain and this correspondent turned to other endeavours, but it was never forgotten what had to be found, hoping for a marginal range increase that would make the voyage possible. Discovery scanners were subsequently integrated into all starships, eliminating their mass. The Endurance was also equipped with uniquely lightweight sensors crafted personally by Laurie Jameson from an ultra-rare proto-radiolic alloy shortly after the flight to Vasil Point. Then, in early 3306, Etienne Dawn developed a Grade 5 lightweight life support blueprint, which saved 800 kilograms. Until now, the fuel remaining had always been negative. With the new weight reduction, careful calculations revealed that the remaining fuel would now be 400 kilograms. Just one and a quarter of 1% of an Anaconda standard fuel load. The previous 1.5 ton margin looked comfortable by comparison. 400 kilograms? Was it possible? The fuel challenge was threefold. The total fuel mass had to be light enough for the ship to jump to AA-AH2. The main tank needed enough fuel for the jump back. The reserve tank needed enough for the long supercruise flight to the neutron star. The third requirement posed the greatest challenge. When a starship's reserve tank becomes depleted, it draws from the main tank to refill. This would leave insufficient fuel in the main tank for the jump back. On reaching AA-AH2, it would be a race against time to supercharge and escape before the reserve fuel ran out. A flight plan was prepared with unprecedented detail, 
calculating fuel burn at every stage down to the kilogram. The route required four jumps and two long supercruise flights. The 400 kilos of spare fuel was distributed between the two tanks, leaving just 27 minutes of supercruise flying time at AA-AH2 before escape was impossible. Extensive testing followed. Two fellow Distant Worlds 2 commanders, Booty CZ and notable Oregon 13, kindly provided fuel support. Two test flights were successfully completed around a replica route near Colonia, demonstrating the precision fueling and flying necessary and proving that a return flight was possible. On the 12th of May 3305, Booty and this writer formed up line astern, a DL-YG3, aimed at AA-AH2. The Endurance's hyperdrive spooled as Booty locked on the fuel transfer controller, ready to execute the pre-fueling. The limpet was sent as it latched on the Endurance prepared the jump. The fuel transfer completed and with a flash the Endurance vanished. Exiting hyperspace, the Endurance pitched down hard to avoid the black hole whilst barely slowing, activating the discovery scanner whilst clawing herself out of the gravity well. There were no planetary bodies in the system. Only a second black hole co-orbiting the neutron star, 355,000 light seconds away. Setting course, jump range were verified, it was almost exactly as predicted, and sufficient to make the return trip. Shutting down the Guardian frameshift drive booster and sensors to conserve precious reserve fuel. There was nothing to do now, but wait. Passing the halfway mark, the fuel gauge showed that there was enough fuel left. The Endurance was going to make it. The Triennio sector had a final challenge. Closing on the neutron star, it was not possible to see the jet cones. Finally, they came into view. Tiny blue wisps, barely protruding from the star's exclusion zone. Supercharging from such small jets is both tricky and dangerous. But there was no choice. And only 10 minutes of flying time remaining before escape became impossible. As the Endurance reached the stellar core, the heads-up display flashed a warning. Fuel reserves at 25%. That was 8 tons, most of which was needed for the jump back. The reserve gauge was now past the L in fuel. With the fuel scoop powered, the Endurance crept towards the jet cone. Any faster and the ship would pass through it before the FSD could supercharge, wasting precious time while making a second pass. Closing to within just 0.03 light seconds of the exclusion zone, the Endurance turned away and edged into the cone. Finally supercharged, there was little time for celebration. As the Endurance pulled clear of the cone, there was barely time to make a handful of pictures. It was time to leave, now or never. The thrum of the hyperdrive built steadily as the prow of the anaconda turned back towards DL-YG3. The sound reached a steady pitch and the heads-up display signaled that the ship was ready to jump. Glancing at the chronometer revealed that the Endurance had arrived at Trinio AA-AH2 less than 20 minutes earlier. 
Finding the system had taken weeks, followed by almost a year before the journey was even theoretically possible. Then days of engineering, planning and testing to prove that the flight could be made. All for just 20 minutes. Taking one final look at the galaxy sprawled out above the ship, the throttles were advanced and the endurance duly obliged. Expending the last of her fuel to finish the voyage this writer had dreamed of for so long. Seconds later, the ship arrived back at DL-YG3. Commander Booty was already waiting nearby. Another rendezvous, and at last, fuel flowed into the Endurance's empty tanks. The great escape of Trinu AA-AH2 was complete. Stations you've hopefully never been to. Mother of Redemption. The Pilots' Federation. Mysterious, enigmatic, loved, feared, hated, envied. Yet not entirely above the law. It's no secret that members of this storied guild wield privilege the likes of which even planetary officials envy. A commander is truly a sovereignty of one. Loyal to none save their own interests, fame, fortune, and infamy cling to these men and women, all of them with the same roguish brush. For many, the crest of the Pilots' Federation is a badge of heroism and villainy alike one that empowers its bearer to be as noble or as malevolent as they please. Or does it? Most informed civilians are aware of the bounty system, the Pilots' Federation, all too keenly aware of the outlaws, rogues, and murderers within its ranks, has implemented. But what becomes of those who run afoul of the galactic law? Modern starships are designed to maximize survivability in even catastrophic circumstances. And more often than not, criminal pilots are taken alive by either system authorities or bounty hunters. Where do these commanders end up? To put it simply, a special prison for special convicts. These penal structures are scattered throughout populated space. One such facility, the Mother of Redemption, a repurposed megaship in Alri Sector KN-SB4-4. The Mother of Redemption is operated by the Independent Detention Foundation, humankind's largest private prison contractor. Its days of deep space exploration are well behind it. The engines cold, the antiquated hyperdrives eternally silent. Right away, one can feel a distinct chill in these corridors. The heating systems aboard the Mother are poorly maintained, and everyone aboard is wrapped in thick, bulky clothing. An oily scent lingers in the air. Having hitched a ride on a transport, this correspondent was able to observe a cargo hold full of convicts being marched out of containment pods the very worst of them having been roused from induced cryosleep. They are chained together in a long line, men and women of all ages and appearances, prison guards barking orders, stun batons at the ready. 
Eventually, the prisoners begin to shuffle away, their movement halting and awkward. Bronson Shaw, a prison official, greets me. Shaw's a very large man with scarred face and ruddy skin, his hand enveloping mine as we shake. Silver Stubble compliments his close-cut gray hair. He is flanked by two armed guards, unsmiling and earnest. There are no pleasantries exchanged. Like the megaship itself, Shaw is a man stripped of frivolity, tough and utterly intolerant of nonsense. Without preamble, he informs me of what's happening, gesturing to the line of convicts. Pilots and crew, he explains. Ships impounded or destroyed. Their owners found guilty by system authorities. Most will be released, eventually. I'll give you the tour. The tour, as Shaw succinctly put it, begins by following the newest batch of convicts to see them processed. Their clothes are stripped under the stern gaze of prison guards, and all are issued matching gray jumpsuits insulated against the ship's unceasing cold. With each jumpsuit comes a pair of matching gray shoes, too soft to be used as weapons. Next is a deep body scan to ensure no contraband is smuggled into the cell blocks. Each convict is given a broad-spectrum vaccine against common illnesses, and a tiny subcutaneous chip is injected into their right hand. The group is then moved into a small room with bolted-down chairs in order to sit. A Pilots' Federation official strides in and delivers a terse speech. The lives they knew as commanders of the Guild are over he explains. Their only option is to serve their time. The newly implanted chip will be removed upon release. Any attempt to remove or disable the chip will alert security and release a paralyzing toxin into the bloodstream. Galnet access is denied. All outside communication is heavily restricted and always monitored. Meals, like other activity, are structured and set at fixed times. From this point on, a commander's new life as an inmate commences. At first, each former pilot is confined to quarters with nothing but their thoughts for company. After the first week, they are allowed to access the commons in one-hour intervals. Groups of more than three are prohibited. Surveillance, both by guards and automated systems, is constant. This correspondent was allowed access to the Master Observation Room, a vast space filled with hollow screens and the officers who monitor them. There is not a single area of the Mother of Redemption that isn't monitored. Shaw points out one hollow screen in particular, zooming in on a new arrival. It's a man, sitting on his bunk, knees pulled up to his chest, silent and glum. This one had everything, he says. A python, crew, good standing with the guild, and his home system's authority. It all came crashing down when they scanned his ship and found slaves. The boys tell me he cried like a toddler when they brought him in. He points at another screen. A woman this time. Younger and lean, pacing her cell like a caged beast, her eyes dangerous. The sleeves of her jumpsuit are rolled up, revealing arms covered in black ink. Clan tattoos, Shaw says. Common among natives of the outer Pegasi, 
This one was, well, let's just say she spent her trip on ice. A few more commanders are highlighted. Murderers, pirates, smugglers of weapons and narcotics and even people. We retreat to Shaw's office, a Spartan affair of scuffed metal and bare deck plating. Here I ask the question that's been on my mind since we left the observation room. With all the ways to make a legitimate credit, why would anyone turn to crime? He considers a moment before answering. For some, it's desperation. Illegal activity can be quite lucrative, and quick delivery of the right merchandise in the right port can be a real lifesaver. For others, it's a way of life. Remember that young tattooed thing? Clan traditions are the only code she's ever known. As far as she's concerned, we're the criminals. And the others? The hardened murderers? Shaw is silent for a long time. We get a few assassins, he says. They're in it for the blood money. But the rest... I think a lot of them are just broken inside. You give a monster a big enough ship, a big enough gun, and they just can't hide what they are anymore. Those are the ones that stay here. The ones I hunted down for free. His eyes are weary. Yeah, I was a bounty hunter. Damn good one, too. Until my reflexes started to fail. But this... This is all I know, so here I am. He gestures around the gray metal bulkheads at his office. There are no touches of human warmth, no particular friends or loved ones on the wall. A titanium cast model of a fertilance occupies the place of honor on his desk, the only clue of Bronson Shaw's past life. The tour continues, but... The details fall away into superfluity. The squabbling politics of prison gangs, the financial aspects of managing a prison ship, the tensions between inmates and guards, the unofficial hierarchy of those whose cells are closer to the core and therefore warmer. None of it seems to matter. The truth is as inescapable as the Mother of Redemption itself. All who reside here, guards and convicts, clerks and wardens, are prisoners. Bronson Shaw is no more free to leave than the convicted Kumo enforcer. The megaship serves to enrich its corporate masters first, and dispense justice second. And all aboard know it. Yet the Mother of Redemption is also a symbol, a reminder that no one, even a member of the Pilots' Federation, is above the law. A lone wolf's guide to conflict zones. How not to die as a mercenary. The profession of mercenary has fallen out of favour in the last few years. There are a few reasons for this, but the most significant is, without a doubt, the money. 
when compared to the easy credits Pilots Federation members are raking in from mining, fighting someone else's war suddenly seems like a risky prospect and, as such, doesn't always appeal to the average commander. This leaves only a handful of pilots, most of whom are fighting out of principle for a cause in which they believe or a faction they support. The money simply doesn't matter. As a result, a Pilots' Federation member who flies off to a conflict zone is often doing it on their own. Unfortunately, many newer pilots end up taking a rapid and unpleasant Remlock trip straight back to their insurance agent after being thoroughly trounced by a superior enemy ship. Fortunately, with a little preparation, the Lone Wolf can survive a conflict zone and even tip the balance in their favour. Conflict zones appear in systems where factions are at war. The mechanisms of how they appear aren't important right now. What is important is the intensity of the conflict, which you can check by looking at your astrogation panel. Conflict zones may be rated as low, medium or high intensity, and you can join the fun simply by targeting the conflict zone and flying in. In all conflict zones, regardless of intensity, your enemies will be flying military-grade ships. The experienced bounty hunter will note that these ships are nearly always better equipped than those they may have fought around the neighbourhood nav beacon. Ships in conflict zones have harder hulls, stronger shields and much better weapons. This means that if you want to survive in a conflict zone, you must ensure that your ship is properly equipped. If you lack combat experience, start off with low intensity zones. These contain fewer ships and more importantly, less dangerous adversaries. Even in a low intensity zone, however, you should expect the fight to be tougher than chasing down pirates at a resource extraction site. For medium and high intensity conflict zones, an engineered ship is strongly recommended. The Crate Mark II is a good starting point, though certainly not the only viable choice. A popular loadout for the Crate Mark II is as follows. Either 6A or prismatic shields with engineering for reinforcement and the addition of the high capacity shield experimental effect. Four shield boosters, one pair with heavy-duty engineering and the other pair with resistant augmentation. Three beam lasers for the large hardpoint, engineered for efficiency and with a thermal vent experimental effect. Two railguns for the medium hardpoints, engineered with the short-range blaster modification and with the plasma slug experimental effect. A 7A power distributor with charge enhancement engineering. 6A thrusters with the dirty drives modification. The result of all this? A ship that can withstand a beating while delivering a reasonably terrifying amount of firepower, and if worse comes to worse, a ship that can outrun anything the enemy sends your way. So, you've purchased a ship, engineered it fully, and chosen a faction you'd like to support. This is a good start, but there's one more important consideration. You'll also need to know how to fight, especially in a medium or high-intensity conflict zone. As a lone Pilots' Federation combatant amongst the military, it won't do you any good to charge in with railguns blazing, at least not if you want a decent chance of turning the battle in your favour. The first and most crucial thing you need is situational awareness. Given the large number of ships in a conflict zone, regardless of its level, you will often see allied ships clumped together. A common mistake new pilots make is to simply dive into this target-rich environment, more experienced pilots call these group of ships murder balls, and for good reason. Fly into one of these and you'll find yourself targeted by every enemy ship within range. More often than not, you'll only end up using those dirty drives to run away. Remember though, your side will probably also have its own murder ball. Keep an eye on the scanner, look for concentrations of friendly ships and try to stay with them. 
You'll also need to be on the lookout for enemy special ops. These typically arrive as a flight of four and consist of highly engineered ships flown by elite pilots. These ships are tough with excellent shields, strong hulls and armed to the teeth. The Ferdelance and the Vulture are a popular choice among spec ops, but you may also spot the occasional Python or Asp. Fortunately, your faction will be keeping an eye out and will broadcast the arrival of any spec ops ships over voice comms. Since these spec ops tend to be very efficient at killing your allies, there is a temptation to take them on immediately, but all this is likely to accomplish is establishing yourself as a high priority target, at which point all four spec ops will focus down on your ship. Even fully engineered prismatic shields will melt in short order under that kind of onslaught, so before taking on the spec ops it's a good idea to let them disperse so you can tackle them individually. Quite often your allies will have a spec ops wing of their own. You can work with them by luring the enemy spec ops into their range. Once the first enemy falls, it becomes much easier to take down the rest. It's important to deal with these spec ops ships quickly as they are without a doubt the most dangerous pilots in the conflict. Occasionally you may find yourself facing down enemy spec ops with no equivalent support on your own side. In that case, it's absolutely essential that you break up the enemy wing however you can. Try to draw them into a group of allied ships, for example, and force them to disperse. If you don't, you'll very likely find yourself on the losing side of the engagement, in which case the best course of action is to withdraw. It may sound cowardly, but if you know the battle is already lost, then leaving the conflict zone to repair and resupply and rejoining the fight in another zone will be far more helpful to the overall war effort than staying and dying to the last pilot. There is no glory in paying an insurance bill. There are, of course, other ships to be found in a conflict zone, a captain to oversee the battle, war correspondents, or perhaps even a capital ship. You are unlikely to kill a captain, the military looks after its officers and this ship will almost always be the first to retreat if things start to look dicey. If you're feeling bold, you can often force a capital ship to flee by targeting its vulnerable heat relays, and while it saddens this reporter to suggest it, journalists do make very easy targets. Special ops and capital ships aside, what about the Navy proper? There will be dozens of other ships taking part in the engagement, and winning the battle boils down to destroying more of the enemy ships than they destroy yours. As such, you'd be well advised to employ a few general tactics. Some ships are easier to shoot down than others. Generally, it's recommended to ignore vipers and vultures, as they are nimble, time-consuming to kill, and don't do an awful lot of damage to your side anyway. A python, on the other hand, is fairly ponderous and easy to hit. Asps, too, are easy targets. Generally speaking, larger ships are always easier to hit, but unless you're in a larger ship yourself, it may take a long time to shoot these vessels down. Often it's just not worth it in the time it takes to kill off one large ship you could have defeated three or four smaller ones, and in a conflict zone it's the numbers that count. If you do go after a larger ship, be sure to target its FSD once you get its shields down, or you may find that you've wasted a good amount of time only to have your target slip away. If you've taken what's known as a massacre mission, a mission to eliminate a certain number of enemies, always target the easy kills. Destroying an enemy corvette with full shields counts just the same as killing an eagle with 1% hull remaining, and going after the weakened ships is generally a good idea in any case. To conclude, when you're the only Pilots Federation member in a battle, you're truly on your own. You need to keep your wits about you at all times and never get complacent. Keep a sharp eye out for the enemy murder balls and spec ops, and try to focus on the quick and easy kills. And don't forget the combat techniques you may have learned while fighting pirates in a resource extraction site come into play here as well, particularly power management. Flying around with two pips in systems, two in engines and two in weapons is going to result in a pretty poor showing on your part. 
and don't forget that discretion really is the better part of valour. Getting sent back to the station in a Remlock suit won't win a battle and will only dent your credit rating. Bear these things in mind and you can have a long and successful career as the lone wolf on the field, ensuring that your chosen faction is almost always on the winning side. The Degenerates White Dwarves, Neutron Stars and Black Holes Explorers often marvel at the beauty of white dwarfs and neutron stars. Their intense light offers an incredible backdrop to many expeditions, and their blue jet cones can be used to travel further and faster, giving any frameshift drive an extra kick. Black holes too are a mesmerizing sight. The immense gravitational field bending light brings wonder to all travelers. But where do these exotic stars come from? You may not be familiar with the term degenerate matter, although the phrase itself should tell you there's something dangerous about it. We're all familiar with normal matter, the protons, neutrons and electrons that make up the atoms in our bodies and the materials in our ships, and with the idea that the atom has a central nucleus orbited by electrons. The space between the nucleus and its electrons is, relative to their sizes, vast. To give you an idea of just how vast, if you scaled up a hydrogen atom so that its nucleus, a single proton, was the size of Sol, the lone electron's orbit would be somewhere beyond Pluto. Normal matter, in other words, isn't very dense. Certainly some matter, such as a large piece of lead, feels very dense, but that's still only a tiny fraction of the density normal matter can achieve if it's forced together with sufficient violence. Degenerate matter is what results when normal matter is compressed to such an extent that atomic structure breaks down and the normal dimensions of the atoms you're familiar with no longer apply. The only places we find this material are within white dwarf stars and neutron stars, both of which are compressed to this state by their gravitational fields. And beyond even these extremes, we have black holes. So, where do these super-dense objects come from? Stars, like starships, only have a finite amount of fuel. If we take a medium-sized G-type star like Sol, it will burn fuel for roughly 10 billion years after its formation. If you own a fuel scoop and have gone beyond the bubble, you will already be familiar with this type of star, a main-sequence star. Main-sequence referring to how the star is classified based on its colour and luminosity. You'll no doubt be familiar with the KGB foam, or maybe even the phrase, oh be a fine guy or gal, kiss me. Both mnemonic devices to help remember the main sequence star spectral types. In order of decreasing temperature, they are O, B, A, F, G, K, and finally M. Main sequence stars are considered by most to be normal stars, powered by fusing hydrogen atoms into helium. Eventually though, a star's hydrogen begins to run low, and the star will start fusing helium. Now the star starts to expand, becoming a red giant, with its surface eventually growing beyond the orbit of Earth. An active star is constantly balancing the forces pushing outwards, the pressure of radiation generated by nuclear fusion, and the intense gravity pulling inward, generated by the mass of the star itself. In a few billion years, when all of the star's fuel finally runs out, gravity will win and the star will collapse unless another force can counteract gravity. For a star with a mass less than 10 times Sol's, this force is electron degeneracy pressure. Stars with similar masses to Sol's will collapse to an object about the size of the Earth, but with roughly 60% of the original mass remaining. This sphere of electron degenerate matter is what we know as a white dwarf. Where does this degeneracy pressure come from? It's the result of an important law of quantum mechanics called the Pauli Exclusion Principle which, as far as electrons are concerned, states that no two of them can occupy the exact same quantum state. 
In the context of an atom, this means that the electrons slot into various orbitals, so as to have different quantum numbers. In degenerate matter, this option is no longer available, so the electrons must all differ in momentum instead. It is this compulsory momentum that gives rise to the degeneracy pressure. Electron degeneracy pressure results in an object that is somewhat squishy. We are used to the idea that, generally, the more massive a planet or star is, the larger it is. With white dwarfs, the opposite is true. High-mass white dwarfs are physically smaller than low-mass white dwarfs as the higher mass can compress the stellar remnant further before an equilibrium between electron degeneracy pressure and gravity is reached. A white dwarf is still extremely hot, but this is purely the leftover heat from its lifetime of nuclear fusion. Eventually, white dwarfs cool down and die. However, since the universe is only 14 billion years old, and the emission of a white dwarf's stored thermal energy can take hundreds of billions of years, no commander can expect to see a cooled white dwarf quite yet. The rare exceptions to this process are the infamous neutron stars. If a star has between 10 and 25 solar masses, the star dies in a supernova, but lacks the mass required to contract into a black hole. For these objects, electron degeneracy pressure is no longer enough to resist the force of gravity. The cores of these exotic stars live on, composed almost entirely of inert neutrons the product of protons and electrons being forced to combine by the immense gravitational pressure of their collapse, until neutron degeneracy pressure and repulsion arising from the strong nuclear force prevent further collapse. Neutron stars are far more dense than white dwarfs. Let's take the iron core of a wolf rayet, for example. Suppose it was the size of Earth. The supernova explosion can outshine entire galaxies as it compresses down into nuclear matter the size of a city. With surface temperatures approaching 1 million Kelvin, the remaining neutron star has the mass of over a million Earths put together, but it is approximately 25 kilometers wide. The colossal density is awe-inspiring. A billion metric tons of matter compressed to the volume of a sugar cube. Neutron stars are so dense that nuclei begin to literally squeeze together at the deepest layers in what is referred to as nuclear pasta. To this day, the properties of a neutron star's core are theorized to be a quark-gluon plasma of the broken-down nuclei, but no one knows for certain. Neutron stars have another property that many explorers find spellbinding, their spin, often likened to the way an ice skater's rotation speed builds up as they pull their arms in. When a star collapses into a neutron star because angular momentum is conserved, the rotational speed increases, sometimes to astonishing levels. These stars spin so many times per second that the generated magnetic field creates EM pulses with a field strength between 100 million to 1 quadrillion times stronger than Earth's, well over 100 billion Teslas. Its gravity well is second only to the black hole behemoth it failed to become, and careful observers will indeed clearly see gravitational lensing effects as the neutron star deflects light that passes close by. If a pair of neutron stars begin to orbit one another, once that orbit eventually decays, the collision will cause a kilonova, which is very likely the origin of most heavy elements in our universe. This collision, which has an astronomically low probability of occurring, would finally result in a black hole, along with an incredible explosion of the two stars' core contents. Stars can die not just once, but twice. There is a limit to how much pressure even degenerate neutron matter can withstand known as the Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkoff limit, 
after the 20th century astrophysicists who first derived it mathematically. If a neutron star has more than two solar masses after its initial supernova, this limit is exceeded and the star collapses completely into a black hole. Black holes are formed from the collapse of stars so dense that they become singularities with immense gravity wells. When you look at a black hole, you are actually seeing the event horizon. The hole is the singularity of mass with near infinite density and this concentration of mass is so strong that not even light can escape its overwhelming gravity. The properties of a black hole past its event horizon are even more mysterious than a neutron star's and likely will remain so for a long time as anyone who crosses the point of no return would have to travel faster than light to escape. Black holes come in many sizes and the smaller ones emit more radiation as predicted by quantum field theory in curved space-time. Although the Hawking radiation from these black bodies does reduce their mass, the process is unfathomably slow. A black hole as massive as our sun would take about 10 to the power of 75 years to lose just a millionth of 1% of its mass. In our galaxy, Sagittarius A star is the supermassive black hole at the centre of everything, a swirling disk of stars and nebulae around itself. It has a mass of more than 4 million suns put together, which probably came from absorbing mass and other black holes over a very long period of time, pulling all bodies in the galaxy towards it in an endless freefall. Black holes are likely to be one of the few types of stellar bodies remaining towards the theoretical end of our universe, and it is possible that all of them will eventually merge into one hypermassive entity, then slowly radiate into nothingness one last time. Now you know the basic story of white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes, a deadly trio of post-main sequence types that can threaten your very existence, but are nonetheless interesting enough to study and admire from a safe distance. One day, long after we've all passed, that friendly yellow star will fade away into a white dwarf, then cool slowly into nothing. Other stars' futures will be much more interesting, forming neutron stars, or the all-consuming nightmares we call black holes. Eventually, after many, many cycles, all the bright lights of the universe may become swirling singularities, and all matter will cool into a motionless state of absolute zero. Though by then, no organic life will have existed for a long, long time. But this won't happen for another 10 to the power of 106 years, one followed by 106 zeros. So there's still time to put the kettle on and enjoy that last cup of Tanmark Tranquil Tea. Thank you for listening to issue 28 of Sagittarius Eye. This issue featured articles written by Ariri, Jonathan Burnage, M. Lehman and Mac Winston and was edited by Adernis Lee Lockhart and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Catisfaction, Kaizen, Rini, Mugiver and Ranger Actual and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at SagittariusEye.com. Sagittarius Eye was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.